Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, this civil trial in New York is just the gift that keeps on giving in terms of drama. And it's interesting to me, you know, it's it's a bench trial. And so normally I, I would expect a bench trial to be more orderly, but I, is, is there a phenomenon here where basically because there's no jury that you have to behave in front of, it's made it possible for this trial to be weirder and, and more of a mess? In a way, I think it's a combination of it being no jury and the judge already having pretty clearly made up his mind about a lot of the key issues and come out uh, in pretrial rulings and during trial very strongly against Trump. And so Trump's team kind of figures they've got nothing to lose by acting out in a way that they can use politically. And, you know, maybe they'll get lucky and drive the judge into some sort of excess uh, that will uh, basically take away the credibility of the trial. So that's what they're kind of doing. They're going over the top, trying to provoke the judge into the reaction and basically capering uh, for their audience. Well, and then also the judge, because there's no jury to worry about prejudicing, it seems like there are certain things the judge is allowing that he otherwise might not. I mean, we, we saw that this week with certain evidence that the uh, defense wanted to bring in. The attorney general kept objecting, saying, you know, this stuff is irrelevant, et cetera. And the judge almost basically says, you know, do you, do you really want to risk a reversal by keeping this stuff out? And, and, and partly it's that, you know, if, if the stuff is irrelevant and the judge is the person who's making the decisions, he, he knows whether or not it's relevant. And so he doesn't have to worry about confusing a jury with the material. Right. Josh, this is a great example of how the judge ruling in your favor is not always a good thing. Uh, when it comes to evidentiary rulings, if the judge all of a sudden just starts waving his or her hand and letting in everything you possibly want to put into evidence, that's not necessarily a good sign. That may just right. be the judge saying, you know, knock yourself out. You just put in whatever you want to put in and we'll see how it turns out for you. Taking away arguments on appeal. And so this was like marketing materials for Trump properties? Right. So like, you know, Trump is trying to make the point, actually, these properties are worth millions, millions. Look at our internal marketing materials that say they are. And the AG is saying, that's bullshit, judge. You can't let that in. And the judge is like, just simmer down, OK? <laughs> Let's just let it in. <laughs> so when you're on the, you're the other side, when you're on the AG's side in that situation, you, you have to have a certain level of confidence uh, in yourself, in your case, and in the judge, not to completely flip out over this sort of thing happening. And I think it, it took a little while for the AGs to get there, but I think they figured it out. A, a couple of other notable things that have happened in the last few days in this case. One is that there's a motion for a mistrial from the Trump side. They're basically saying the judge is hopelessly biased, and therefore we deserve a mistrial. And, and the motion lays out more or less three arguments. One is this stuff that has so angered the judge and has been so bizarre for outside observers where they're claiming that the fact that his law clerk sits up there on the bench with him and that he confers a lot with his law clerk, that that's some sort of improper and impermissible co-judging that he's doing with the law clerk. And they want a mistrial for that reason. They also say that Judge Engeron has improperly put news article links about the trial in the alumni newsletter for his the private high school that he attended some decades ago. And they're saying that that's an, an indicator of some sort of bias or just, you know, improper public commentary by the judge on the case, even though it's basically more or less just providing these links that there's like one little snippet of commentary that they fixate on, but it's mostly just the sharing of links. And then the third thing has to do with political activity by the law clerk, who they're so fixated on. They're saying that she gave contributions to Democratic candidates that were in excess of what's permitted under certain ethics rules for court employees in New York. And that's a reason that they want a mistrial. So what do you make of these three arguments that they deserve a mistrial? Well, almost uniformly, observers think it's an extremely long shot. It's clear the judge will deny it and that it's incredibly unlikely that a court of appeals will do anything with it. The arguments about the clerk co-judging are just nonsense. It's just a freak show uh, designed to draw attention because, you know, the clerk is a young woman perceived as very liberal and therefore exactly the sort of person that the Trump people love to bully and call out for abuse and and that type of thing. I would note that the situation where the the clerk sits on the bench next to the judge that is that is abnormal, right? It's it's not necessarily abnormal in a way that matters for any of this, but this is not like how it usually looks in the courtroom, right? Yeah, it's not typical, but I mean, you're just talking about the difference between, you know, the clerk being on a table 
several feet away and occasionally bringing notes or even communicating by text or something with the judge versus the, the clerk being up there. It, it's purely appearance. It, it, it's really nobody serious thinks that this is a serious issue. The judge, if he did put these uh, comments into a high school alumni newsletter, that's probably not appropriate. Notably, all of the instances seem to be not only before the trial, but even before he made the key summary judgment rulings. And there's kind of an extent to which you can't, like, save up this type of argument and then make it after the trial is basically over. Uh, you have to make it timely. So I think that's one argument against it. The other is that although, you know, it might be inappropriate for the judge to be anywhere posting comments that have anything to do with the case before him. It's probably not something that mandates the judge's recusal. So I think it's a weak argument. The stuff about the law clerk, uh, the consensus seems to be that the law clerk has some potential problems in terms of making excessive donations in excess of what law clerks are supposed to in New York and engaging in political activities. But again, the, the problem is how does that connect to this particular trial or to Trump? So generally, the, the consensus seems to be that, no, this is not something that, that mandates recusal. Well, I mean, the, the allegation about how it connects and, the, and this the, the law clerk was engaged in political activity in, in the pursuit of she, she herself was trying to get elected to a seat on the civil court in New York. And she gave money to various Democratic clubs and committees. And they, they talk about how those those clubs and committees engaged in political activity in support of the attorney general. Uh, who's a party in this case. And so that's the that's the claim about how it would relate to the case. Right. The, the thing is, um, this is one of many ways that your courts are deeply weird there, Josh. In addition to the trial court calling itself the Supreme Court, you've got this system where a lot of <laughs> we, the time— We love to keep people on their toes. Yeah. Start in the Supreme Court and then move up. Exactly. A lot of the time, from what I understand— People who are law clerks who elsewhere would be a rather junior job wind up directly from that job running for judge, which mm -hmm. is deeply weird anywhere else in the country. But apparently this sort of thing happening is very common. And in fact, the donation limits were put in place, not so much because of the worry of bias, but because of the worry of patronage, that the only way you get supported in your running for the judge position as a law clerk or whatever is if you're paying money to the right people. So that's kind of the context for those rules. I can certainly see why it creates an appearance that probably shows bad judgment by the law clerk. Uh, but again, the the uh, standard for forcing a judge to recuse himself is very, very favorable to the judge, even though nominally the standard is what would a reasonable person think in looking at all this. That reasonable person is an artificial construct. It's a reasonable person as seen by judges steeped and immersed in this particular judicial culture. So it's not any reasonable person you and I would recognize. It's a reasonable person who goes to lunch with judges every day. So I, I, I think it, just about everyone thinks the motion is a loser. Right. And so, you know, if the, if the motion is is an argument into the court of public opinion, then, you know, whatever. I mean, that's the argument that they've been making all along is that this is a rigged and improper proceeding with Democrats and on all sides out to get them. To the extent that the motion is actually an effort to set up for an appeal, this would be entirely in state courts in New York, right? You'd go ultimately up to the Court of Appeals in Albany, which is a you know the, is a substantial liberal majority on that court. Uh, is there any possibility that they can get into a federal court with any of these issues? Well, they could try. They could say, you know, it's a due process violation on such a level that the federal court has to intervene. The problem is federal courts are set up to be extremely adverse to interfering with state court proceedings. And that would be truly unusual and against all sorts of uh, doctrines called abstention doctrines that forbid federal courts from interfering with state court proceedings. So he could make the argument, but again, I think it would be mostly performative if he did. I think it's very unlikely that a federal judge, with the exception perhaps if he got lucky and drew some of his most partisan Trump-appointed judges, uh, would intervene. And then the other uh, notable thing that's happened in this case over the last few days happened on Truth Social, where the former president retruthed a post that said, I would like to see Letitia James and Judge Engeron placed under citizen's arrest for blatant election interference and harassment. And so the former president resharing that statement. Now, the the 
the gag order that Judge Engeron imposed doesn't apply to statements about Judge Engeron himself. So I don't think this is a gag order issue. But the question a lot of people have is, is, is this a crime? Is this incitement where they're trying to get somebody to commit some sort of crime against Letitia James or the judge? I mean, look, Josh, you know that for the years we've been doing these shows, I've generally said that the allegations that Trump is engaging in illegal incitement outside the First Amendment, I've generally said, eh, probably not. It's a really tough test to meet. Here, I'm, I, we're starting to get into the realm where this is a plausible law school fact pattern where the answer could be, yeah, this is outside the First Amendment. I mean, citizens arrest stuff comes in, it, it has a context, a history. And there have been several periods in the nation's history where citizens arrests has been used by extremists to harass and attack public officials who are doing something that extremists don't like. Uh, indeed, the, the the attempted kidnapping of the governor in Michigan was framed as an attempt to make a citizen's arrest. So when you got Donald Trump promoting the statement, uh, you know, retruthing, which is the same as retweeting, which just means reposting on your account, given Donald Trump's audience, its past propensity for violence and extreme action, basically calling for a citizen's arrest of the judge and the attorney general, which amounts to calling for them to be, you know, forcibly detained by some citizen. Kidnapped. Uh, kidnapped. Um, yeah, I, I think is it the standard under Brandenburg for incitement? Is it intended and likely to cause imminent lawless action? I think you've got likely, uh, at least for these purposes. I think you've got intended. The only question is whether it's imminent enough. Because I can absolutely plausibly see him doing this, getting some nut on his side to, you know, try to arrest the judge uh, uh, and summarily try them or something. So what is imminent? Because, I mean, I, I feel like the normal case with imminent is like you're giving a speech to a crowd and you're basically like sicking them to like, you know, riot on some some business or some crowd of people. And it's imminent in that it's like literally just about to happen. Whereas this is sort of like, you know, who will rid me of this troublesome priest? Right. So imminent is not set in stone. You're right that the clear case for imminence is, you know, go get those guys over there. The middle ground for imminence is like the, the Trump speech on January 6th, where they've got to walk a few miles or in the case of many Trump supporters, ride their rascal scooters several miles to get to Congress to uh, <laughs> commit violence. <laughs> Um, and the longer one is like this, but there's sort of like this is one of the areas of the law where there is movement, where people are saying, OK, what is imminent in the Internet age when you can? Because, you know, if imminent requires everyone to be physically present, that would mean it's impossible to commit incitement online, which which doesn't seem to be right. So could I defend this case? Absolutely. I could say this is not imminent. Is it absolutely clear that it can't be incitement? No, I don't think it is. If there were to be criminal charges brought over this, who who could bring them? Well, there's a federal statute against uh, basically inciting uh, or encouraging violence uh, over, you know, over interstate communications, which would include the Internet. There are New York statutes. I don't think at this point anyone's going to do it unless something happens. So uh, if this winds up with some deranged Trump supporter attacking the AG or their staff or the judge, then I could see them making a decision uh, to charge Trump with inciting that. Yeah, so that that was what I was going to ask, is how common it is to have incitement charges brought in cases where no act was in fact incited. It's less common when nothing happens and when there's not circumstances suggesting that it nearly happened. So it's more likely to happen in the you know two crowds facing each other type scenario that's more likely to lead to charges. This where it's kind of, you know, you could imagine something happening, but it didn't, less likely, much less likely uh, to lead to charges, in part because of the First Amendment ambiguities. Mm -hmm. Let's stay in New York and talk about our mayor, Eric Adams. Uh, speaking of gifts that keep on giving or, or gifts that end up getting you in prison, maybe. Yeah, Eric Adams, Josh. Eric Adams, uh, as part of your history of Eric Adams, Rudy Giuliani, uh, which is the Cuomo who thinks that groping women is Italian. Uh, that might be a multiple choice question. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's nothing to be ashamed I mean, of. Self-governance is not for everybody. Uh, look, so. I voted for Catherine Garcia. <laughs> this is not my fault. Uh, but so anyway, Eric Adams, our, our fun mayor, who's in favor of whatever you do so long as after 2 a.m., 
Eric uh, is being investigated by the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI related to his ties to Turkey. This is not uh, what I had on my bingo card for what Eric Adams might go down for in the end. Uh, but so there's this fundraising scandal. Uh, a few weeks ago, the home of his chief fundraiser got raided by the FBI. Uh, Eric Adams was on his way down to Washington, D.C. on official business. He turned around and headed back to New York, uh, which th- this is more PR advice than legal <laughs> advice. But if, you, if you're if you trying to s- send the image uh, that whatever is happening related to your political organization is not aimed directly at you, I would not get off the Acela and start heading back to New York because one of your employees' homes gets raided by the FBI. Um, but so the, this was the home of Brianna Suggs, his chief fundraiser, who's also 25 years old. She was described in the New York Times as his longtime advisor. I don't know how long <laughs> you could be an advisor to a political uh, official if you're 25. But so in any case, uh, she had her home raided. Uh, he was also approached by federal agents and had his electronic devices seized, two cell phones and an iPad. And then there's been this news reporting that there uh, are questions about fundraising that was done illegally by these these foreign Turkish entities, uh, maybe bundling donations illegally to his campaign, funneling, you know, it's the straw donation thing where uh, I want to give a bunch of money that exceeds the limit of how much I'm allowed to give. So I give money to my friends and they turn around and give it to a political candidate. That's illegal. Don't do it. Uh, maybe that happened with some of this Turkish money. Um, and so then there are some questions about the extent to which he used official influence to help them, particularly with um, this new building they built that had a Turkish diplomatic facility in it that had some fire code problems, and they were having trouble getting a certificate of occupancy. And he uh, intervened to help them get their building open back when he was Brooklyn Borough President. So anyway, this is this is what's swirling around Eric Adams. Is he in serious trouble? I would say so. I mean, your advice to him not to turn around and come rushing back and increase the narrative is right. I would also add, I don't know if Eric Adams has committed crimes, but if you're going to commit crimes, don't put a 25-year-old Brooklynite named Brianna in charge of the crimes. This would be my <laughs> recommendation. Uh, the As you've pointed out uh, to me before, Josh, you know, you get a lot of stories where lower down people who work for politicians are investigated for campaign finance stuff, and it never reaches the top person and never reaches the candidate themselves. What's different here uh, that was quite striking to me is that the feds actually went out, rolled out with a team, confronted the mayor of New York City in public and seized two of his phones and his iPad in front of his security with a warrant. That is a fairly dramatic escalation. Uh, And I don't think there's any chance they would do that unless Eric Adams was at least personally a subject of the investigation. That is someone that they were open to concluding had committed a crime, more probably a target of the investigation, someone they think has committed a crime and they're developing information to indict because you, you just don't show up and take the mayor of New York City's phones as the feds unless you were really into this investigation. So I would say we don't know what the trouble is yet. It could be some sort of bribery theory where, you know, he allegedly improperly asked someone to take an official action in exchange for money. It could be, um, you know, campaign finance. It could be any of a number of things. But that act, um, seizing his phones with a warrant, is absolutely the sign of a serious investigation of him personally. So there's sort of a couple obvious sets of theories you could have where you'd have a criminal investigation here. One, as you note, is a a bribery theory. The other is simply about donations that are illegal, that come from people who are not allowed to give or in excessive amounts or are given through straw vehicles, that sort of thing. So, uh, I mean, there there could be that set of questions. As you note, one of the problems that has often arisen in those sorts of investigations is that you can pin that maybe on people who work for the candidate. It's often difficult to pin that directly on the candidate and show that they had, had knowledge and were involved in those sorts of schemes. The second is a, is a bribery theory uh, where the mayor is taking certain official acts in exchange uh, for political donations. And the problem there is showing a quid pro quo. And there's been this line of Supreme Court cases, the McDonald case and other related ones, which make it very hard to show a criminal violation there without certain very explicit agreements. And the defense that you've seen from the mayor about this action, which was, was an action taken when he was the, Bro- the Brooklyn Borough president, 
um, was that, you know, he gets requests all the time from various sorts of constituencies and entities to help with issues with city agencies and that they were just trying to, you know, work things out with, I forget whether it was the fire department or the department of buildings basically saying, you know, well, isn't this workaround that they have on the fire detection suppression system, isn't this good enough to get a temporary certificate, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's ordinary type stuff. And furthermore, uh, this was a building in Manhattan when he was the Brooklyn Borough president, so he didn't even have direct control over it. So it's sort of, I mean, there obviously could be a lot more information that's not out here in public, but what we've seen in the paper on that seems a little bit like weak tea for a bribery theory, right? Well, I mean, we talked about this in the case of the bribery case about Bob Menendez uh, a few episodes ago. Uh, The state of the law, as you said, is it's not bribery if you're simply making a call or introducing somebody or, you know, doing the the handshake and and socializing stuff. It has to be either doing an official act or using your influence to get someone else to do an official act. But if like the the fire commissioner is clearing a building that had been put on hold uh, to be opened and occupied, that seems to me to be an official act. And if Eric Adams was a, a public official and who, you know, lobbied that fire chief to do that official act, and he did it in exchange for money, then that is bribery. But that's the part showing that it was in exchange, right? I mean, there are people who are political donors who interface with the city all the time. Right. And if they give somebody money and that person, as a result, either does an official act or convinces someone else to do an official act, that is illegal bribery. Right. But the the as a result, how do you show that it's as a result? Well, maybe you do it with communications. Um, maybe you do it with timing. Maybe you do it with uh, cooperators who are witnesses to the communications. Uh, you do it any number of ways. You know, Eric Adams uh does not strike me as the guy who necessarily listens to Stringer Bell about not taking notes <laughs> on a fucking criminal conspiracy. Uh, mm-hmm. So it would not, he, he's not exactly subtle or uh, restrained in his communications. It would not surprise me if he's out there throwing smoking guns around. And, and then what is this stuff about potentially cooperating? Well, he made big noise. Of course, he has to, because as his persona as Mr. Law Enforcement, Mr. Pro-Police, Mr., you know, why don't you just cooperate with the police? He has to take the stance, oh, I'm cooperating with this investigation. We're just out for the truth. You know, who knows mm-hmm. what that really means? Is that Does that mean he's going to sit down with a no-holds-barred conversation and question session with the FBI? I would enjoy seeing that, Josh. I would like to watch that. But I suspect that when it gets to that point, that's not going to be what his cooperation looks like. Is, would you advise him to do that if he were your client? God, no. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, that, uh, that sounds right. Let's talk about Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden uh, has filed a motion. He wants to subpoena former President Trump uh, and Jeffrey Rosen, who was the deputy attorney general or the acting deputy attorney general, I believe, and Bill Barr, who was the attorney general in the Trump administration. These are subpoenas for documents. So he's not yet looking to to force them to sit for interviews. Uh, But basically, he wants documents. And it's part of a, a theory that there was that basically he's being selectively prosecuted for political reasons. Yeah, this is a, a somewhat odd motion. So this motion is brought in the gun case. So you remember after that plea deal fell apart, uh, the feds refiled the gun count against him as an indictment, saying that mm-hmm. you know he got he got a gun while he was an addict or a habitual user, and that is the case in which he's filed this motion asking to issue subpoenas. It's the only active case, right? Right. It's the only active. It's the only place where he could do this. And his theory in there is, like you said, I think these politicians improperly influence the decision to charge me and set the chain of events in motion, notwithstanding that he didn't get charged until after they had all left office. Here's the problem I see with it. Um, Selective prosecution is a theory, right? Selective prosecution is when the government decides to prosecute you for something it normally wouldn't prosecute based on an impermissible motive, like your race or your religion or your speech, your protected speech. Um, But there is a specific body of law dealing with when you're entitled to discovery 
into selective prosecution. So this was developed decades ago when I was a prosecutor, and it was mostly about people trying to get evidence about why the government went so much harder against crack dealers than it did against cocaine dealers. You know, the theory being that this was a policy deliberately aimed at African-Americans. And the body of law that developed basically said you can't just get it by asking for it. You have to make a showing of some evidence that uh, of the test for selective prosecution, which is, again, that other people who are like me are not being prosecuted. And there is evidence that I am being prosecuted for an impermissible reason. And Hunter Biden's motion doesn't really engage that test or, or that standard. So I think that's what the government's going to come back with. That said, given the types of things that Trump has said in the past, and given how seldom this particular law is prosecuted, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility he could make that showing and get selective prosecution evidence. But I'm not sure he's going about it the way that the judge is going to want quite yet. But, but here's what I don't understand about that. This indictment was brought by the Biden DOJ. These officials whose documents he wants don't run the Department of Justice anymore. How could it be? I mean, it, 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 even if it's the case, and it, I find it plausible that it's the case that the Trump administration had a politically motivated reason why they investigated him, et cetera. How can that be used to show that this charge brought by the Biden DOJ under the leadership of Merrick Garland was selective prosecution? I, I think that's one of the main problems, and I think the response would be that it was the Trump administration that set the wheels in motion, that started uh, the investigation that led to the eventual prosecution decision, and that sort of the fix was in structurally as a result of, you know, starting the wheels. I don't think it's a terribly strong argument for the reasons you uh, suggest, because I think I, I have no doubt that the evidence will be that eventually higher-ups who were Biden administration people okayed this uh, particular decision. But I, I think it's more likely part of Hunter Biden's overall effort, and there's another instance we can talk about in a minute, of using litigation, using the system to develop more evidence uh, that Trump people have it in for him that he can use in future prosecutions. Mm -hmm. If there is a future Trump DOJ that brings prosecutions against him, this will help them argue that those prosecutions are selective? Exactly. He's using every vehicle he can to try to gather information that will help him show that Trump partisans impermissibly participated in, did illegal things in the investigation of him. Right. And so the other thing in this vein is a, uh, a defamation lawsuit that he's brought against Patrick Byrne. Patrick Byrne founded Overstock.com. Uh, he's a nutty conspiracy theorist. He was showing up at the White House in the last days of the Trump administration, and he showed up in some of these libel lawsuits about various conspiracy theories. Uh, and now he's suing Patrick Byrne for saying that Patrick Byrne uh, defamed him, defamed Hunter Biden by saying he was conspiring with Iran. Right. Uh, and it's, you know, a, a full-blown, aggressive defamation claim filed here in Los Angeles in federal court. Uh, again, this does not appear to me calculated to wind up uh, getting a lot of money from you know, Patrick Byrne. It, it appears more calculated uh, as a sort of strategic measure to get information and discovery into who was pushing him to say those things about Hunter Biden. What he wants is evidence that Trump or Trump people were telling him, go out and say these things about Hunter Biden, because that then helps his long-term goal of having lots of evidence to establish that Trump people uh, were biased against him uh, that he can use if the worst happens and, and Trump gets reelected and starts prosecutions of him. Let's talk about some things that have been happening down in Georgia, uh, this big, messy RICO prosecution. Uh, first of all, uh, D.A. Fonnie Willis says that her trial of the former president could go into 2025. I don't think that timing is surprising to any of us, right? It shouldn't be, but I am seeing people expressing surprise. And to me, it's like, yeah, well, that's what we've been saying this whole time, that when you indict more than a dozen people and you want to bring tons of people to trial and you're doing it with this RICO theory that demonstrably leads to six, nine, 12-month trials, that you're going to be having a very long process that's not plausibly going to be done before the election. 
It's funny, you know, we talk about this other Rico case against Young Thug, right. uh, who's an Atlanta-based rapper and various other co-defendants, and that the jury selection has been going on forever and ever. And I periodically have to check and make sure the jury selection is still going on in that case. They finished it a couple of weeks ago. It took 10 months, but they have finally seated a jury in the Young Thug Rico case. Yes. So that one, now they get to go to an interminable trial. They now have a panel of jurors who are able to sit for like another 10 months. <laughs> People who have that free time are going to decide Young Thug's fate as a Rico defendant. So good luck, man. <laughs> but is that like that timetable going into 2025? Is that is that planning on like a 10 month jury selection process for this case, too? I don't know if they think the jury selection will take that long. Well, I think it will be certainly be pretty horrific. But I think just the way they've charged this with all these connected conspiracies under the RICO umbrella is going to take forever to try, particularly in state court, which tends to be less uh, crisp and fast, uh, and particularly with the cast of characters they have here who are always doing uh, time-wasting things. Yeah. So speaking of uh, not being so crisp, one other thing that's happened in this case in the last few days is some of these proffer videos, the, the statements from the defendants who have pleaded guilty uh, and have talked about what they were up to in this election-related conspiracy. Those video statements got leaked and ended up in the press. And the, the most interesting thing was Jenna Ellis, who was one of the Trump attorneys, talking about her conversations with Dan Scavino, um, who's a close right-hand aide of Donald Trump, his director of social media among other uh, roles. He composes a lot of those tweets. Uh, she described talking to Dan Scavino in, the, in, in late 2020 and him saying, well, the president's just not going to leave office. And her trying to say, well, it's, you know, that, well, that's not really how this works. And he's like, well, we don't care. So that was, I don't, I don't know how legally important that is, but that was an interesting, uh, there was an interesting news note out of that. But people were wondering where, how the hell did these videos get out? And so uh, long-suffering Judge Scott McAfee, can we call him long-suffering yet? I think we can at this point. It's kind of a compressed process for him. <laughs> so uh, Ju Judge Scott McAfee, who's presiding over this, had to ask all the attorneys, did you leak the videos? Did you leak the videos? So one of the attorneys accidentally sent a statement saying they leaked the video, but it was a typo and they had to send it back. <laughs> and say, like, we meant to say we did not do that. That's right. <laughs> that was the uh, lawyers for uh, Harrison Floyd, actually, who you'll hear more about in a moment, who sent it saying it was lawyers for Harrison Floyd. And later, <laughs> no, wait, wait, typo. It was not the lawyers for Harrison Floyd. Uh, I'm, I'm going to use the, actually, that was a typo whenever I want to retract confession from now on. I, I kind of like that move. But so it, it turns out it was a false confession because, in fact, it was Missy Hampton's lawyer. Uh, who got up and said that they they released the videos and it was they said they did it for transparency because the case is important and they want people to know what really happened. Right. And so now they're contemplating a protective order that would tell them, you know, not to do that and close the barn door after the proverbial horse is out. Uh, Wait, so were they not breaking the rules by releasing the videos? Yes, they apparently were uh, under the existing rules. However, there wasn't a specific protective order. Uh, in place. So now they're they're remedying that. Okay. But are they going to get in trouble for having done that? I, I don't think McAfee yet ruled on what the consequence was going to be. Uh, and this may be, you know, the dog gets one free bite type of situation. <laughs> uh, so it, it, not sure what's going to happen. Yeah. So but even though uh, Harrison Floyd and his lawyers were not in trouble uh, for uh, accidentally confessing uh, to leaking stuff. Uh, Harrison Ford is in some trouble. Floyd. Harrison Floyd. Yes. Harris, leave Harrison Ford out of it. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Um, Harrison. Well, sorry, we should explain for a moment who these people are. Miss, Missy Hampton was an elections worker in Coffee County, if I recall correctly. Yes. And Harrison Floyd uh, is the head of, I believe, Blacks for Trump. Uh, who is mm -hmm. alleged to have a role in this? Harrison Floyd is something of a. I think we use like to use the term character. Before he was arrested <laughs> in this case, he was uh, arrested and charged in D.C. for allegedly body slamming the federal agent who delivered a grand jury subpoena to him. Uh, he seems to have something. That's of a, a no-no. Yeah, he seems to have something of a temper. And now Fonnie Willis has filed a motion to revoke his bond, saying that he is using social media uh, to intimidate and attack potential witnesses, that he's going on TV and that he's using social media to do this. And, and she lists in the motion a bunch of stuff that 
to me uh, is kind of kind of more like typical Trump person trash talking less than, you know, you better stop, you better shut up, or you're going to get it. It's more you're dishonest and an idiot type stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure what the judge is going to do with this. I think it's much more likely the judge will just give a warning and say, cut that out. But nevertheless, Fonnie Willis thinks that he's going over the line into harassment and intimidation. He thinks in, in typical restrained form, he put out a tweet say, uh, with a picture of Clarence Thomas from the Thomas hearings saying, you know, I'm just another black man in a high-tech lynching here. Uh, so he's leaning into it. When you say he's been going on TV, you're using the term TV loosely. He was on something called Conservative Daily. Uh, he was on something called The Absolute Truth. I don't I don't think you can get these on your basic cable. No, I'm sure they're kind of like YouTube guys in their basement or, or you know, uh, facility. But uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he was going on these show, right-wing shows and talking trash right. about people like Jenna Ellis. I didn't see anything that struck me as an overt threat. Mostly it was, you know, she's unethical and betraying Trump. Tr- trash talk like that. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I mean, is that First Amendment protected? So maybe. I qualify it because when you're a person who has been charged with a crime and you're on bond, then the judge's discretion to restrict your behavior as a condition of bail is broader than the judge's ability to punish your speech in general, right? So a judge is very clearly established, can tell you not to talk to co-defendants, not to associate with co-defendants, not to, you know, things like that. Uh, The exact contours of what that freedom of the judge is are not as well uh, established as they probably should be. Because again, kind of like gag orders, it's something that's rarely challenged because generally you don't want to piss off the judge. So uh, I would say that probably there is more freedom Uh, to punish a wider variety of speech by someone who is on bond than there is to punish some sort of, you know, citizen just out there. I want to just quickly talk about these cases, about whether Donald Trump can even appear on ballots in the 2024 election. We talked about a trial that was ongoing in Colorado, looking at the question of whether he should be on the Colorado ballot. There are also proceedings in Michigan, um, and we've got a ruling from a Michigan judge uh, basically saying that the Secretary of State does not have the legal obligation or authority to remove Donald Trump from the primary ballot um, on the grounds that he's ineligible for office. And that basically this is this is a political question for Congress. It's not up to the Secretary of State. And furthermore, Michigan law says specifically how, how the Secretary of State is supposed to put candidates on a primary ballot. It doesn't deal yet with the question of the general election because that question isn't ripe. We, we don't even technically know whether Donald Trump is going to win the Republican presidential primaries and be a candidate in the general election for president in Michigan. Um, but this certainly looks like a strong indication from this judge that uh, the this Michigan dispute, it's not looking like Donald Trump will be kept off the ballot there. Right. And, and this is not very surprising. Uh, the relevant components are that Michigan law says who's on the ballot and who isn't based on specific uh, qualifications and procedures. And the judge is saying, since the secretary of state doesn't have discretion here, I can't tell her what to do. Uh, this is determined by law. The, the bigger point, though, is that political question thing. Remember, we've talked about the political question doctrine over the years. It's a doctrine that says sometimes courts will not resolve a dispute when that dispute is in the language of the Constitution, clearly left to another branch of government. And there's a typical Supreme Court six-part test to determine whether that's the case or not. But the, but the the judge's theory, basically, is that the language of the 14th Amendment, Article 3, uh, that gives Congress the ability to relieve people from the disability of being made ineligible demonstrates that it's Congress that's supposed to make these decisions. Um, which to me is kind of putting the cart for the horse because they only do that after the person has been deemed ineligible. But at any rate, the judge uses this to say this is a decision for Congress, not for courts. It's a political question. The other term is non-justiciable. And uh, so we're not going to do it. I suspect that's the way a lot of the judges are going to come out. But so here's what confuses me about that. I mean, suppose some secretary of state somewhere decides that they are going to remove Trump from a ballot. And there's no action by Congress on the matter. If it's a political question, then does the court disturb the action of the Secretary of State? 
If they're being consistent, no. If this judge were presented with that set of facts, then to be consistent, this judge would say, this is a question for Congress. Congress has the power to remove this disability that uh, the Secretary of State has determined. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it's up to Congress and not to me. So the, so the political question doctrine can cut both ways here. It could it could protect Trump, but it could also protect a, an official who decided to remove him from the ballot. Exactly. It, the political question doctrine is one of those areas where um, really it's an elaborate way for a judge to say, look, leave me out of this shit. Uh, I don't want to mm -hmm. get involved. Uh, and it's often used to um, avoid getting involved in deeply politically contentious issues. Let's talk about Congress. Speaking of politically contentious, it's been a it's been a rough week in Congress. They've been in session for like 10 weeks in a row in the House. And I don't think that's been good for moods over there. It's 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 kind of like, uh, you know, when you have your kids in the in the backseat of a car on a very long road trip, their their behavior starts to deteriorate the more and more hours you're on the road. That, yes, the, that seems to be happening with our governing officials. It does, to the point where I think uh, right now the first rule of Congress is don't talk about Congress. Right. And so we want to talk about whether any of these things were crimes. And so first of all, Kevin McCarthy, the former House Speaker, is in the halls of, of Congress. I forget whether it's the Capitol or one of the House office buildings. But so anyway, he's walking by Representative Tim Burchett, who's one of the eight Republicans who voted to remove Kevin McCarthy from his speakership. Uh, Tim Burchett's talking to a reporter. He gets jostled. Uh, and he decides that he's been elbowed in the back intentionally by Kevin McCarthy. And so he's talking with this reporter, and then he starts pursuing Kevin McCarthy and yelling angrily at him, which is very out of character for Tim Burchett, who's generally a pretty happy-go-lucky figure. Uh, and so later, Kevin McCarthy's being interviewed, and he said, I didn't notice that that happened. If I bumped into him, it wasn't intentional. He said, if I kidney punched someone, they would be on the ground. Uh, and therefore, it, it must have been unintentional because, you know, he, he didn't hurt Tim Burchett that badly, although he kind of laughed when he heard that Tim Burchett was, was complaining that he's still in pain from this alleged kidney punch. There's also apparently there's some material in former Representative Adam Kinzinger's book in which Kinzinger alleges that after he sort of fell out of favor with House leadership, that Kevin McCarthy sort of like shoulder checked him twice intentionally or like what he eventually perceived to be intentionally going around the, the House of Representatives. And this was very immature behavior. And so is it, is it illegal to punch your colleagues in the kidneys? It is. And I would point out the it's also corroborated. Burchett's uh, version is somewhat corroborated by the reporter who said that as McCarthy was passing behind him, Burchett suddenly like lunges at her and not for any of the reasons that, you know, a Republican congressman would normally lunge at a reporter. Uh, so <laughs> it seems as if something happened there. No, it's it's assault. Uh, it's not the sort of assault that's routinely prosecuted when there's no injury. It's more the type of assault that is is followed up by this sort of uh, sad performative masculinity of of saying, if I'd punched him, he'd go down on the ground. There's also an interesting question of whether or not it's protected by the speech and debate clause of the Constitution. Uh, so uh, that would be an issue. Uh, but no, you're not allowed to punch your coworkers, Josh, in the kidney. I want you to remember that in particular. But he may be basically immune if it happened uh, at Congress as, you know, he's on his way to congressional duties. Why would it be protected by the speech or debate clause? Because he could say, I'm on my way to vote or do congressional business or, or that type of thing. That's an argument he might make. What the speech or debate clause says is that they can't be arrested during their attendance at the session at their house, respective houses, and they can't be questioned for any speech or debate in either house. So I realize that they can't arrest him right there in the House of Representatives, right. and they can't charge him for a crime related to his speech or debate, but I don't understand why that would protect him from charges for an assault that happened to be committed in the halls of Congress, even if they couldn't arrest him in that moment for it. I think it's unlikely that the defense would ultimately work, but the speech and debate clause has been argued and asserted very broadly uh, mm -hmm. to um, try to apply it to all sorts of things in Congress, at Congress, related to congressional duties. So I would completely expect him to raise it. Whether it would be ultimately successful is another question, but it's kind of an angels on the head of a pin thing because it's unlikely that this would ever get right. seriously investigated. I do have to say that, you know, coming up with a line, if I kidney punch that guy, he'd be on the ground, is the most Kevin McCarthy 
thing ever. Uh, just sort of like the, the douchiest possible response to being accused of this uh, is what he says. In the Senate, which is supposed to be the more mature of these bodies, uh, there was a hearing at which Senator Mark Wayne Mullen from Oklahoma, who is a former UFC fighter, he got into a dispute with Teamsters boss Sean O'Brien. I guess Sean O'Brien has made some comments about Senator Mullen on social media that Senator Mullen does not appreciate, uh, saying that he needs to drop the tough guy act. And so, of course, Senator Mullen responded to that by challenging Sean O'Brien to a fight right there in the hearing room. He goes, you want to run your mouth? We can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. And Teamsters boss Sean O'Brien, in his own display of maturity, says, I'd love to do it right now. Again, Senator Mullen is a former UFC fighter, and he could definitely beat the shit out of Sean O'Brien. So, like, you know, I, I understand that he, you know, felt the need to, to perform uh, the, the ability to, to stand up to that challenge, although I, I know who my money is on on who would win that fight if it happens. Yeah, but afterwards, Mark Wayne Mullen gets buried under the uh, 50-yard line in a stadium someplace, so... <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Sean O'Brien beat a Hoffa in an election. So I know he's not a, he's not afraid of people who he maybe should be afraid of. Right. But so in any case, you know, the uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, who's chairing the hearing, has to you know bang the gavel. There's been a lot of really good gavel banging in Congress over the last few weeks because of the great irritation so many of these people are feeling. And so you have Bernie Sanders saying, you are a United States senator. Uh, to, <laughs> to to Mark Wayne Mullen explaining why he's not supposed to challenge the witnesses to fights. Is it illegal to challenge someone to a fight? It can be. It can be illegal to issue a challenge or accept a challenge to a fight. Uh, that is literally fighting words. Uh, you know, that, that narrow and seldom used and maybe partially dead exception to the First Amendment for issuing words that are likely to cause the person to respond violently. You can absolutely be prosecuted for disorderly conduct or, or things like that. There's some states that have laws specifically forbidding challenging someone to a fight, and it's generally understood that those are legal. But uh, in Congress, that is probably definitely under the speech and debate clause because it's something he's literally saying on the floor of the Senate. Uh, and, and let's just point out that um, leaving aside the philosophical question of uh, whether if you name your kid Mark Wayne, that, that inevitably leads him to challenging teamsters to fight. Um, <laughs> you have the fact that that you're doing this surrounded by armed guards, uh, you know, protected by Bernie Sanders uh, and, uh, you know, cloaked with a speech and debate. Uh, you know, it's not that serious of a challenge to fight. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's not really that bold, Josh, in my view, to challenge someone to fight under those circumstances. It's kind of more like, you know, standing behind your mom in the door and mouthing off to the neighbor kids. Uh, so but that's just me. Could Sean O'Brien be prosecuted for accepting the challenge? He's not protected by the speech or debate clause. In theory, he could be. Uh, but uh, he would probably have some sort of, uh, you know, sort of speech self-defense. I'm just responding. I'm not issuing the challenge, that type of thing. And again, it's not anything that ever gets actually investigated or prosecuted. George Santos is the the less uh, physically violent uh, version of mischief in Congress this week. And he, of course, is already under federal indictment. So it's not it's not an academic question whether he can be charged. Uh, but there's a report that just came out from the House Ethics Committee that finds substantial evidence that he used campaign funds for personal purposes. Uh, and they referred the probe to the Justice Department. Although the Justice Department has already charged him with crimes closely related to this. And the, the details of this are fun. Um, you know, he, uh, you know, received these uh, these campaign funds and then he used them to spend more than four thousand dollars at Hermes, which, by the way, doesn't go that far at Hermes. You can spend like more than 500 euros on a beach towel at Hermes. I discovered when I went into their flagship store in Paris earlier this year. So, like, you know, if you're if you may need to steal a lot of campaign money if you really want to outfit your house from Hermes. Um, there was that photo of him carrying a big ass orange Hermes shopping bag. And I always wondered, like, does he tell people like this is my Hermes bag? I'm sure he does. And it's just a shopping bag. But what I like about this, Josh, is the contrast here. Yeah. What's after Hermes, Josh? <laughs> uh, OnlyFans. Right. He spent money on, on OnlyFans supporting independent content creators like us. Can. You know, I think in independent media is the backbone of American society. And I, you know, I salute right. him for spending the campaign funds on OnlyFans. And Sephora. Um, and Sephora. And I believe also for Botox, 
I got a text message from my husband during the taping about Santos Botox. So I assume that that relates to spending and or maybe just to his like very tight, youthful looking skin. I don't know. But so uh, you are not allowed to do that. You can't spend your campaign funds at OnlyFans, even if maybe you should be allowed to do that. No, although I think it's entirely possible the people at OnlyFans uh, are more competent running a campaign than the people George Santos has actually chosen. So I don't think we can rule out that's the idea here. So yeah, this is just more bad things happening to George Santos. And the only question is, you know, whether Congress is going to do anything about it other than just throw it to the DOJ and let them decide. I do have a concern about George Santos, though, uh, Josh. Yes. What's your concern? People need to stop giving him babies. So like, (laughs) it's like uh, Lauren Boebert gave him her grandkid, uh, other people, they keep handing this man babies. This man is is <laughs> a sociopath. He's he's a serial fraudster. He's under indictment. Stop giving George Santos babies. Okay, Jesus Christ. Why do I have to tell you people these things? <laughs> who's who's who was who's was the first baby? I'm not sure, but I'm just saying if you hand this guy your baby, five minutes later, <laughs> your baby is going to be the CEO of a 501c3 corporation uh, to raise money for Santos. And I just don't think it's a good idea. My favorite thing was that the first time that he was seen with the baby, it was Tim Burch's office that he was coming out of holding the baby. And a reporter asked him, is that your baby? And he said, not yet. <laughs> I, I don't know why that's so funny, but it's really funny. It is. I'm just surprised he didn't say, yes, it is. I invented babies. <laughs> I'd also note, by the way, he says that uh, he, even though he's innocent, he's not going to seek re-election next year, which is very sad news for us in the Legal Difficulties podcast business. By the way, I think we should we, we owe it in the in the interest of fairness and balance to quote his statement where he says, if there was a single ounce of ethics in the ethics committee, they would not have released this bias report. The committee went to extraordinary lengths to smear myself and my legal team about me not being forthcoming. My legal bills suggest otherwise. It is a disgusting politicized smear that shows the depths of how low our federal government has sunk. Everyone who participated in this grave miscarriage of justice should all be ashamed of themselves. And so on. In we, that we the people desperately need an Article 5 constitutional convention. <laughs> I guess you can. Can can you call that on OnlyFans? Uh, well, Maybe I, like a live stream I, or something? I, I don't know. I, I think that would turn out as well as any other way, frankly. So... <laughs> Uh, so on, on that note, and, you know, all all defendants are innocent until proven guilty, including George Santos. So uh, important to note, uh, he, you know, maybe he didn't do anything wrong. Uh, but why don't we leave it there this week? Ken, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you, Josh. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosher. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more soon. See you next time.